Welcome to 10% Talks, a podcast where we explore the world through a psychological lens. I'm your host, Matuno Suit, and on today's show, we'll be exploring personality. I was recently talking to a leader. He was a visionary, head-in-the-clouds type of leader who had great ideas around where to take his organisation, but he failed miserably about being able to translate those ideas into a concrete strategy. He turned around to me at one point and said, I'm not strategic, can you make me strategic? Now in this comment, I felt like he wasn't just saying he didn't have the skills, I felt like he was talking about his personality. He was asking a bigger question about whether his personality could change. What is personality? What kind of personalities are successful in the modern workplace? Are our personalities set or can we adapt and change them? My guest today is Nikita Mikhailov. He is a psychometrician and personality expert and he has spent his career analysing personalities and helping companies to think about how they fit the right personalities to the right roles. Welcome Nikita. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) It's great to have you on the show. Maybe you could just start by telling us a bit about what you do. Well, that would very much depend on the day. So, hmm, what did I do today? Well, um, helping people design better selection processes to pick the best candidates for the job using, for example, psychometric assessments. Then worked a little bit in development space, so helping people to develop however that might look like using psychological frameworks. So similar to the conversation you had with that leader who seemed to have a little bit of a head in the clouds, as you put it, Um, writing some proposals because, you know, we do need money. And... um, also thinking about the role of personality in office design. Interesting. So, so, so personality features a lot in terms of what you do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how would you define personality? Because it's a word that we band around a lot. How do you define it? It's a big question. How does one define personality? Without going into too much detail, I would just say that personality is what you like, what you do, what you do too much. Mm. And it's almost as... Um, interface between our consciousness and reality. Mm. It influences not only how we perceive the world around us, but also how do we act on what we perceive. So, because though you might be looking outside right now, you might be listening to this podcast as you're walking down the street, Mm. but none of that street actually exists. It's all created in your cranium, Mm. in your brain as it's floating and it's in darkness and suspended in liquid in your cranium Mm. and uh, this image that you see around yourself which seems so vivid it's reconstructed from the signals that your senses send to your brain from your eye senses your sense of smell and all of this is put together to create this fantastic three-dimensional image with sight smells and tastes Mm. but um, we have no way to tell if for example Your perception of this room, Maktuno, is the same as mine. Mm. They're likely to be slightly different. Mm. And it's very hard to identify how can we even measure it. But to me, a good personality model can be one of the clues which gives us indications that we might perceive a world differently. Interesting. So you're talking about how actually trying to define personality is difficult in itself, but there are models that we can use to try and deconstruct what personality is to understand it. So what kind of models would you use or what kind of models are effective in terms of understanding what our personalities are? Mm -hmm. Yes, there's many models of personalities and there's tools based upon them, such as personality questionnaires. And you get like nice little shiny reports with all the different colors and diagrams and percentile scores. Um, Though 
is just tools. And before we go into them, I just want to say that a personality model can never do anybody full justice. Mm. We're extremely complex beings. Mm. Like mm. the number of new neuron connections in your brain right now is like, I, I don't even have the number for it, but mm. let's say it's more than all the sand pebbles on all the beaches globally in this galaxy. Mm. It's huge. So we're infinitely complex. Uh, so no 144, 250 questionnaires will ever do you justice. Mm. The way that I see personality tools is like navigation equipment. It's like a compass mm -hmm. or a map. Mm -hmm. Same as if you look on your phone and Google Maps, yeah. the, as you're walking down through London, it never does what you see around you justice, mm -hmm. but it's helpful to navigate. Mm -hmm. The map is never the territory. Yeah. So it never claims that, let's say, your personality trait or type is you. It's just a lens through which we can look at it and see where you are, where you're going. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, it's so, so, so a model, or even when we try to understand personality, it's more about trying to understand markers or maybe landmarks by which we can orientate ourselves. Bingo. It's landmarks of individual differences, put it this way. Okay. And uh, the model that I prefer to use is called a big five personality model. Okay. Uh, and uh, you can... I'll put in a, a link like to some YouTube videos, which yeah. are good introductions. So, how would to you it. understand Big Five? I mean, so if we were to deconstruct personality, mm -hmm. some people would say, "Oh, I'm extrovert. I'm introvert." Mm -hmm. People often talk about that. People might talk about maybe um, I like new experiences, or maybe I don't like new experiences. H how do we understand or deconstruct personalities in terms in terms of a model like you'd like you were talking about, Big Five? So, I can just introduce the Big Five simply. Mm -hmm. Big Five was started being created in the 1930s mm. through what's known as a psycholexical approach. Basically, we look at psychology of language. So a couple of dudes in the 1930s picked up a dictionary mm. and decided to use a psycholexical approach. So if there is something which is important about our individual differences when it comes to personality, we should already have a word for it, as we've been speaking for thousands of years. Mm. And they identified 18,000 words. And they started analyzing this, creating surveys. And about 1980s, we had the Big Five model. So Big Five is like five centers of gravity around which all those 18,000 words circle around. Okay. So one is neuroticism. I'm sure you came across it, though people are not as quickly to admit they're neurotic as they're introverted or extroverted. So neuroticism is um, a couple of things. One is risk perception. People high on neuroticism are more perceptive of risk. So somebody low on neuroticism, they'll go, wow, what's the chances of this happening? One in a thousand. For somebody high on neuroticism, it's like 50-50 and it's probably going to happen. Uh, and, uh, and there's reasons for it. So for example, maybe evolutionary are more content and happy ancestors got eaten. Or so a little bit yeah. of anxiety is useful because actually you can detect a risk or a threat Yes. So all of us have a uh, have a level of neuroticism within us, but some people might have higher levels or lower oh, levels. Absolutely. We all have the big five. Uh, it's just the level of it. So too much neuroticism when this anxiety prevents you from doing things or maybe even leaving the house. That is not very constructive. Um, then neuroticism is also about other negative effect, depression, anger, all that. And as well as people high on neuroticism have a a negative attitude towards their self-construct. Because mm. whenever you're answering that questionnaire, like, I make friends easily, or I'm 
it takes me time to be myself around other people. You're answering questions about who you think you are, or as known as self-construct. And who would you, who would you, if you were to identify somebody, say for example in the public eye, who would be classified as your sort of archetypal person who's high in neuroticism? Is there anyone that you might put in that category? Yeah, Woody Allen. He made a whole business out of being neurotic. Nobody yeah, would yeah. go and see a non-neurotic yeah, Woody Allen yeah, film. Yeah. I mean, it would be just like, what am I watching? Jeez. So interesting. So neuroticism is, is one of the big five. What are the other four? Well, you alluded to one of them. It's extroversion. Though we bounce this, I'm an extrovert, I'm an introvert. Uh, the Terminology, as far as I'm aware, was coined by Carl Gustav Jung. Jung, yeah, one of my friends is a psychotherapist. <laughs> one of the forefathers. <laughs> one of the forefathers, yes. Uh, though he basically said there's no such thing as an intro full, uh, complete extrovert or a complete introvert because that person will belong in the mental asylum. We're all a bit of both. Some people are a bit more extroverted, some people are a bit more So again, it's a gradient, it's a spectrum. Exactly, it's a gradient. Uh, and in all these personality questionnaires, we norm the data. So this is one of the requirements for a assessment to be known as a psychometrics. The data has to be normed. We take your results and we norm them. So what we then get is a percentile. So we, when we compare your results to other people, if you score a 99 percentile, that means if we line up 100 people, you'd be the top one. So you're so, defined in relation to others. Exactly. Okay. Because it's all relative. Yeah. And so with extroversion, introversion, in terms of that as a spectrum or a gradient, what does it actually look like? So what, what, is, what is an extrovert? Well, as far as my working definition, it's, mm. it's about stimulation from the environment, mm. as we previously mentioned. There's a thing called cortical arousal, mm. and that's how much stimuli your brain actually needs to feel engaged with the world around you. Mm. So people high on extroversion need more stimuli. Mm. So you can spot one in the office if you're listening to this right now. I call this the meerkat effect. So when somebody's bored and extroverted working on the laptop, they stand up and they start looking around. Who can they talk to? Because it's stimuli. It's not personal. It's a shame um, that we don't have a video in here showing <laughs> Nikita looking like a meerkat. Well, it's okay. You know, it's uh, so much caffeine. Uh, just an excuse. Uh, but the thing is that, uh, or it might be music, or it might be cigarettes, or it might be coffee. It's stimuli. Uh, well, people have an introversion don't need as much stimuli. So... They might not appreciate too much of that extrovert coming across to them wanting to have a chat and a coffee while they're trying to work. And um, there is that difference. There is other difference about exploratory behavior, if you want to get into that, as well as potentially uh, dopaminergic system. Uh, people high on extroverts, extroversion might be a bit more receptive to dopamine and feel-good chemicals. Uh, okay, so we've looked at neuroticism, we've looked at mm -hmm. extroversion, introversion. What are the other... Then we come to openness, and that's going back to your leader, as you described him. Uh, openness is all about... How can I put it? Thinking outside the box. It's about curiosity. innovation. Curiosity. Okay. Intellectual yeah, curiosity. Yeah. Appreciation of aesthetics. Uh... Lots so so da, da Vinci would be described as someone very high on openness yeah. in terms of his sort he, of interdisciplinary exploits yeah, and creativity. He, ironically, he was not very disciplined. He's known as somebody who started a lot of projects but barely finished any. Mm. We have world art galleries with beautiful paintings, rarely finished. Uh, which is really fascinating because I was in, in Milan recently at a museum which was... It was a, it was an exhibit of some of the inventions in his codex actually translated into the finished article. So Bingo. he'd been curious and maybe high in 
openness, yep. <laughs> but hadn't finished it. No, no, no. He, he actually maybe didn't even build the model. It's yeah. the people yeah. high on conscientiousness, maybe not so high on openness, who actually picked up the codex and was like, oh, can we build it? Yeah, yeah, we'll get the materials, we'll put it together. It's so it's interesting because there you touched upon sort of openness and it seems like we've kind of segued nicely into maybe another one of the big five, which is conscientiousness. conscientiousness. Can you conscientiousness talk about that? Conscientiousness is about strength and will and drive and purpose. People high on conscientiousness can sacrifice smaller pressure now for a bigger reward later. It's a whole marshmallow test. Uh, and uh, yeah, people high on conscientiousness, they said they're going to do it. And could you maybe describe the marshmallow test in terms of so, our listeners? Uh, you give kids an option. You give them one marshmallow. You say, look, if you don't eat this tasty marshmallow, you'll have two marshmallows later. And some kids eat the marshmallow and some people wait to eat the two marshmallows later. Though, of course, this research is not perfect and there's lots of new criticisms, but there's something to it. People high on conscientiousness can spend long time in the office doing stuff they don't particularly like because they can force themselves to do that. Potentially, the risk of really high conscientiousness, let's say 99th percentile, is that they just don't stop until it's finished. So they might start a degree, realize it's not right for them, but because they started, they will finish it. Maybe they're in a job they don't particularly like, but they feel responsibility. Okay, so adaptability might be lower for someone very high in conscientiousness because they're very focused on finishing completing yes. the task. If they started, they will finish. Okay, they so don't... I, for example, could be an entrepreneur, yeah. a new business, maybe a startup. Maybe I identify that it's going in the wrong direction. But if I'm high on conscientiousness, it might be consistent in terms of implementing a strategy or business plan. But if actually I've realized, wait, hold on a minute, this isn't working. <laughs> if I'm that sort of person that's particularly high, I might just follow it through regardless. It would be a combination of high conscientiousness, low openness, so you don't explore other opportunities, high extroversion, positive effect, and low neuroticism, low negative effect. You think things will work out, you're potentially a bit ignorant of the risks, mm -hmm. and you just stick with it. Mm -hmm. And you think it will work out. Interesting. So conscientiousness and... I mean, I know some of the research conscientiousness is quite linked to sort of success and the ability to achieve things. Or I mean, what's your view? Success is inverted commas. Yeah, of course. Yes. So <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, what success is. Yeah. yeah, depends on the circumstances. Within the corporate world, yeah, conscientiousness is something that people desire. And we have seen a correlation of like 0.3 with performance. And the correlation 0.3 basically explains close to 10% of variance between people when it comes mm. to effectivity. Not too much, but it's still very considerable. Mm. So this is why, for example, some psychometrics, when used in selections, it would look for a higher level of conscientiousness. Okay. And what's the fifth? Um... Ah, agreeableness. 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 It's about playing nice with others. Yeah. Um, high people on agreeableness. Mm. To them, it's important to play nice with others, to be liked, mm -hmm. harmony, mm -hmm. relationships. Mm -hmm. You can spot a person high on agreeableness. Uh, for example, when you sit down with them and ask them how they are, they tell you how their uncle is, their nephews, how their children mm -hmm. doing at school. Mm -hmm. To them, that's very important. Mm -hmm. People don't agreeableness, don't particularly care about not being, not being liked, you know. Mm -hmm. I have the key people who like me and everybody else, they're adults and they can just get on with it. Um, and quite often, like in corporate settings, uh, you hear a lot of pop psychology about psychopathy. Uh -huh. And in most terms, uh, I can, <laughs> let's say, over 90% of all the times I encountered that word, it's people high on agreeableness perceiving people low on agreeableness. Mm -hmm. 
So from a high agreeable perspective, they might see low agreeable people as uncaring, only care about themselves. They're so confrontational. No, they're just okay with conflict. And maybe that person high on agreeableness can be a little bit more forthcoming with what they disagree on and maybe meet in the middle. And so I'm interested because if I kind of allude back to the introductory story when I talked about this sort of head in the clouds leader, mm-hmm. lots of ideas, couldn't strategically implement something. So if you were to think about the big five, yeah. how would you interpret or understand how he was describing his experience of himself and his abilities? Well, when it comes to personality and leadership, I I would always ask, for example, what does he mean by strategic mm. or how would good look like? So what is he aiming for? Because by the sounds of it, he's probably high on openness. Mm-hmm. But it's not the question, and he's a leader, so there's people reporting to him, I take it. Mm-hmm. So potentially it might not be as far as him being more strategic, but him being clearer to his pe- colleagues who report to him about what he wants implemented. Because quite often I find people who score really high on openness experience what's known as night move thinking. So it's chess rather than jousting. Uh, it's uh, all chess pieces move in the line, except the knight. It moves two down, one across, I believe. It skips a step. And therefore, when he might be presenting, he might go, A, C, but when he's at C, he goes, Miss B. I don't need to mention, everybody knows there's B between A and C. And then he goes, D, G, X. And uh, colleagues who are a bit less uh, high on openness, let's say down to earth, um, they might not follow his chain of thought. They might turn to another colleague and say, he missed B. Yeah, right. And they come out of the meeting, it's like, he really missed B. Yeah, I know. He didn't come back to it either. Like he said, when he said any questions, he like moved on to something else immediately. So it's just that he might struggle with actually communicating it to his colleagues. Um, now, is that see, see what I'm interested in, interested in is this whole thing of personality. Can personality change or shift? So is it that, for example, this individual, he is high on openness. That's how he is. That's who he is. Therefore, he is always going to struggle or have to be aware of that and the implications that might have in terms of the way he leads. Or is it that actually he can be aware of that, change that, shift that? What's your view? In terms of all the different aspects of the big five that we've talked about, are there any that are more or less amenable to change? Well, what research shows us, because one of the beauties of the big five is that you can go to Google Scholar if you have trouble sleeping and you can type in big five and you will literally get like 1.5 million plus articles and references to the big five. It has been researched in all sorts of settings. Uh, and um, what we do know is that A, neuroticism is quite man- uh, can be manageable. Uh, but it's also to what extent. Let's say, because when I mentioned that it's all a scale, it's called a standard distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you can also look that up on Google, you will see a really nice graph. And when you score on a particular percentile, mm-hmm. so 50th percentile is the average, mm-hmm. uh, then it's standard deviations. So to what extent you actually deviate from the average. So for example, 99th percentile would be two standard deviations from the norm. 86th percentile, one standard deviation. 
you can shift, let's say, from 99th percentile to 86th percentile with self-care because high people on neuroticism because of negative self-construct are unlikely to take care of themselves. Okay. Yoga, exercise, yeah. better diet, maybe just don't watch the news all the freaking time uh, and maybe read The Economist once a week because it's a summary of all the news rather than checking it on your phone. Uh, switch off notifications from your phone after six o'clock. Uh, little things. This is achievable. But moving from 86 to around 50th percentile is going to be much harder. The more you change, the harder it becomes. Okay. So the question is, is this the best energy you can spend uh Actually so in a way changing. you're saying that say for example neuroticism is quite neuroticism mm -hmm. you can get a shift in that yes. but actually how much energy would you spend trying to shift that are you better trying to find for example if it was a role that maybe activated a lot of mm -hmm. anxiety or um activated and kind of tapped into that high level of neuroticism is it better to find a different role where well, actually you can kind of be more in your lane for example oh potentially well for example uh, or make neuroticism your strengths Work in the risk department. You're likely to be quite good working at risk. And uh, So you're talking here about sort of almost matching personality and thinking about its fit with a role. Because actually there might be certain types of traits that are yes. really useful in certain roles. So one of my favorite questions to use in a feedback session or a coaching session or however you want to call it, I call them one-to-ones, uh, is can you tell me what aspects of your personality do you consciously manage at work and why? Do you think it's necessary to do so? And every person I ask so far, and that's hundreds and hundreds of people, if not thousands by now, everybody has an answer. That is what's most interesting. And it varies. It's also on a spectrum. It goes from, I'm two different people, which is very curious. A person is aware that they're changing so much as if they are a different person. And by the way, it's not necessarily that they're change into somebody else at work. At work, they might be themselves. At home, they might be somebody else. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't take that for granted. To go in, um, oh, pretty much, not that much here and there, but I cannot, get, I cannot believe I'm getting paid to do what I do. It's people who find alignment or congruency between their personality preferences and environmental demands. Mm -hmm. And this is why so much research about engagement, etc., has shown the effect of job crafting. So you change little bits of your job to be more suited with actually how you want it to be. And you're more likely to enjoy it. To fit your personality? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And not only personality, your interests. Yeah. Carl Jung, going back to one of the forefathers, um, yeah. said something interesting. Well, he said a lot of very interesting stuff, profound things. One of them is, your interests is your future self trying to manifest itself in the current moment. So the fact you're interested in something, there's something to it, mm -hmm. but we don't follow that. Mm -hmm. It's a good example. Uh, I have a, my partner and a friend who's a psychologist uh, and they were having a conversation and my partner wanted to pursue something she was very interested in. Mm -hmm. And she said, but I'm, I don't have any other reasons for it. And my friend who's a psychologist, uh, Paul Harris, uh, said the fact you're interested in this is makes it worthy enough of pursuit. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, we've talked about personality, the difficulty of sometimes trying to define something very complex, but the big five as a model being useful in terms of thinking about different kind of traits or aspects mm -hmm. of personality. I think we've also kind of touched upon the idea that 
actually there are certain parts of personality that are easier to change than others. Mm-hmm. You can make small shifts, but to try yes. and make bigger shifts can be more difficult. And is it worth the energy actually doing that? Exactly. So it's very much a balance between what brings you energy and what takes energy. Mm. I'm not saying follow your bliss, play to your strengths. Mm. Yeah, that's all good. Mm. But sometimes we need to dial up what we're avoiding the most. So let's say I'm conscientious. There's a thing about orderliness or structuredness. Mm. So if I'm really low and structured, like really low, and then I just like to go with the flow, you know, I don't really stick to appointments, etc. Maybe if I just dialed it up a little bit, there's be a very large return on investment. Maybe if I'm holding back and feel resentful towards others because I'm holding back, maybe if I start saying more rather than okay, holding so back. This is interesting. This is almost a concept of almost dialing up or dialing down mm-hmm. certain traits, but thinking about what is the kind of almost like opportunity cost, isn't it? It's almost yes. thinking, okay, well, actually a small amount of shift in mm-hmm. that could create a good result maybe for my career or for maybe that. Maybe, for example, I want a pay rise and yes. it means I need to be a little bit less agreeable Bingo. maybe I dial up slightly and I can get that pay rise and I can you know get a swimming pool in my backyard <laughs> oh, well, maybe well, <laughs> it's summer it's hot you know yeah. it's 36 degrees that's oh, why swimming okay. pool came to mind right. it's all about the context you see we're just sitting in this nice studio and I'm just like why is a swimming pool uh, yeah absolutely if if you want the pay rise and if you're high on agreeableness A you're not likely to ask for it and B, when you ask, it's like more like, sir, can I have some more? No, because money is a finite resource within an organization. And that's not an argument. That's not a business case. Something I'd like to kind of maybe come in t- to land on and think about is, so as, as a psychotherapist, I'm often maybe working with people whose personalities might have been shaped by formative experiences or shaped by trauma or those sorts of things. So I- I'm interested in the notion of what do we know about personality as maybe a result or a product of trauma or past experiences and to what extent is that intrinsic to who someone is or maybe more reflective of how they've been shaped does that so are there parts of somebody that might be more amenable to change if that part of them has been produced from a traumatic experience for example does that make sense yeah it does make sense because our environment shapes who we are and we shape the environment around us it's a double uh, way interaction and uh yeah, trauma plays a, a big part. I mean, there is research on that, what impact trauma has. And for example, it might make you a little bit more risk-prone in the ways that uh, more de- easier to detect risk because you feel under threat because of what might happen to you in the past. And uh, what we do know is that if we put you in a stressful situation for more than six months, where you feel the resources you have are not enough to meet the demands which are being placed on you, um, then... Um, you might develop uh, higher levels of neuroticism. Mm. We respond to our environment, but our personality also puts an impact on how we shape the environment around us, if that makes sense. No, of course, they, they kind of, they interact. Exactly. It's... There is something that's kind of inherent to maybe, you know, we have a particular temperament or particular mm-hmm. predisposition, but then as we interact with the environment, that will kind of shape or mould the way that actually develops, I suppose, mm-hmm. over childhood, adolescence, into adulthood. Because um, I'm thinking, for example, of maybe, take, for example, the agreeableness we, we were talking about. Somebody who is not agreeable because maybe they had a previous negative experience of asking for a pay rise. Therefore, it's not that in lots of other contexts, they're not 
assertive on the front foot, mm-hmm. but that the memory of that then starts to create a fear in those sorts of environments with mm-hmm. authorities or those sorts of contexts where they don't actually exercise that trait as much. Yeah, or or they might have had a bully as a boss in the in the first job they had. There could be a lot of factors. What we do know is that personality is fifty to eighty percent genetic. Okay. And uh, then, of course, it's quite changeable because we need to remember that when we talk about genes, is that just because in your genes it won't necessarily manifest into who you are. Mm-hmm. What research shows that like over eighty percent of your genetic code will never have any impact. It's just mm-hmm. there. Um, I'm more fascinated by the phenotype level, the level of genes which are activated. Mm -hmm. So actually, and this is where the environmental demands and stimuli Mm -hmm. can have an impact on which genes are activated and not. So even on the genetic level, it's quite curious. And actually your genes seem to have a connection with to what extent your personality can be flexible or not. And what's really cool right now is there's research into personality disorders. I'm sure you're familiar with those and genetics and the big five. Mm -hmm. So they, for example, find that uh, I think uh, genes which we know connected with openness sit on the same allele as uh, genes associated with schizophrenia. So they're like neighbors. So that's really interesting because it sounds like actually, so the big five, I suppose, as as, as a model where you're talking about using it in that sort of psychometric context within a, say, a corporate environment. You know, the DSM-5 and sort of, you know, that psychiatric diagnosis mm-hmm. of personality disorder, but that actually now there's, they're being aligned. Yes. People are starting to say, okay, we need to look at personality as a as a whole, the different models and kind of align them rather than... Yeah, DSM-5 is an interesting creed because at the end of the DSM-5 and like new approaches and diagnostics, they propose what's known as a dimensional diagnosis of diagnostics of personality disorders. So before it was categorical. You have the symptoms... You have the disorder. So a more spectrum approach. Bingo. Where do you, again, like you were saying, where do you fit on a spectrum? Because yeah. personality is too hard to fit into discrete categories. Absolutely. And the dimensional approach proposes to use extreme scores on the maladaptive version of the big five. Mm-hmm. It's still a big five. It's just maladaptive. And saying that extreme scores on this personality scale can actually be used as part of diagnosis. And it's something, I think this is a really kind of nice place to, to end really in terms of what we're talking about, but I think sometimes people might say, I want to change personality because it's a good personality or a bad personality, but there's something really interesting about actually, we're all on a spectrum, we can dial up and dial down these things to a certain extent, um, but it's not simply, you know, there is one way to be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting... Yeah, it's, what's really curious here is we all want to change and not all, but we all want to be better than we are ourselves. I'm sure you get like, I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better brother. All this lovely archetypical constructs, just a little nod to Jung that. And um, what's really curious, A, one needs to ask, how would better look like? B, why do you want to be better? And uh, see, do you really have the resources to try? How to much do this? energy can I put into yeah. that? And where is it best spent? Exactly. So, for example, going back to your leader. So he's probably been quite successful in his career, given his position. Of course, right? I, he's known for ideas. He's known for being head in the clouds. Bingo. So, why does he want to be more strategic? What changed? Mm. I often, sometimes encounter this, and sometimes it happens because his number two has left. And uh, well, interestingly, a number two had left. <laughs> oh well, you <laughs> see, you go. <laughs> and uh, maybe that was the strategic bit that has gone because we. So how do you delegate out the parts of you sometimes that you're not as strong in? Bingo. So and how you're aware of your own weaknesses and where you can fill someone into that space. So I use a, 
a tool which allows people to complete a quick personality questionnaire for other people. So ask you 16 to 24 questions. And then I compare you, how you see yourself to how you see this person. And see, maybe having this number two, who is a bit maybe more pragmatic, could translate things, uh, etc. cetera, uh, translate his head in the clouds ideas and say... Well, I suppose that, you know, there's a common phrase, you know, a CEO has his head in the clouds, a COO has their feet on the ground. Well, yeah, or startups are created by liberals run by conservatives. Or the yin and yang, something a little bit older. So the balance, yeah. It's, it's, yes, because to me, it's, it's about balance. Like, if I have an extreme personality, such as head in the clouds, I can't run a company myself, my own, because I'd like have a bias for novelty, don't send out the invoices, don't follow up with clients, like, oh man, not, but I'll have a great time, but you know, once the bills come in, I'm just like, uh, but uh, I pair up with people who compliment this. So it's uh, because the big five, just as a little taster of what might come later, is um, breaks down into two parts. It's what's called meta-factors. One is plasticity, one is stability. Plasticity is made up of extroversion and openness, all about exploration, novelty. And you have stability, which is low neuroticism, high agreeableness, high conscientiousness, or getting uh, on with it, uh, getting, yeah, getting <laughs> along with it. So it's people who are responsible, get stuff done. And you need both. It's like with, let's give an example of Apple. Yeah. Uh, you had two Steves. You had Steve Jobs and you had Steve Wozniak. Yeah. And that was both of them who created the Apple computer. We just see Steve Jobs, you don't see Steve Wozniak, when actually they both worked in a complementary way to create what they did. Exactly. And this often happens in business, is that you have this two people working together and they're usually quite different and there's usually a bit of disagreement and friction, but uh, they can work quite nicely. And what I find, what separates, one of the factors that separates teams who are successful and who are not, is respect for the opposite. Mm. It's, uh, we could be high on openness. Mm. That's great. Mm. But we might be working with Carl there, and Carl is low on openness. Yeah. And I go, look, I had this great idea, and I presented it to Carl. Yes. And he, like, didn't follow up. I go, exactly, happened to me too. And I'm just like, I'm so happy we had this conversation. Yeah. And, uh, and then we basically become an echo chamber. And uh, we don't respect. And Carl actually might have been like, well, guys, you're missing. Like the delivery department doesn't actually know what to do. it's interesting because there's a lot of research around even when you think about personality and mm -hmm. politics and sort of whether you're right-leaning, mm -hmm. left-leaning, sometimes a schism, yeah. the split between right and left and the problems that creates mm -hmm. in our world. And I think it's a nice place to actually think, you know, balance is something really important you know you talked about sort of you know yin and yang mm -hmm. steve jobs steve wozniak <laughs> you know labor and conservatives perhaps there's ways actually that if we can get that sort of complementary approach to the way that we look at kind of our world and even ourselves that actually that's how we move things forward exactly it's about communication and respecting the opposite uh, and having people who be able to discuss and disagree and that's okay and this is how it grows. Because to me, one of the key issues which we're now experiencing from my perspective is a breakdown of communication. Mm. If we look at Brexit and just look at the demographics of people who voted out to voted in, mm. that's huge. You know, older generation voted out, younger generation voted in mm. generally, you know, I'm sure there's, but that means there's a breakdown in communication. Mm. Same as uh, labor and conservatives. Mm. To me, the issue is that now it's not about balance. Each side polarizes, doesn't talk to yeah. the other. And 
when you, you also see this in dysfunctional teams, such as the executive team moving from away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And what going back to what I do, one of the things I do is go into such teams, go into such environments, and use the tools that I have at my disposable, including personality, to illustrate guys. Look, for example, there's a lack of respect here. There's a social desirability for uh, creativity, but mm-hmm. uh, innovation. But there's no respect for implementation. Mm-hmm. And you need both. Or there's, for example, people who don't see the value in the boss's ideas, but they see him as head in the clouds. So it's how can we bridge this? As far as I understand, and I read it on Facebook, so it must be like an ancient proverb or something. There's 10 steps between every two people, and it's up to each one to make five. So it's about us coming together in the middle, respecting our differences, but also seeing common ground and how we can work with their differences to create something wonderful and beautiful and uh, a better world for tomorrow, for future generations to come. Nikita, thank you very much for coming in and hopefully have you on a future show. Ah, I would love to. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.